Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I have the great pleasure of speaking today with Sheila Logminus. Welcome, Sheila, to the Beeson Podcast. Oh, Dr. George, it's such an honor and a, and a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Now, we've got to tell everybody a little bit about who you are. You are a famous radio personality in New York City, and you have your own radio program. You've actually had me as your guest once or twice. So I, oh, this is turn, Turnabout is Fair Play. So welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You have been an esteemed guest, and you're going to be again. We have many, many things to talk about these days. Now, uh, there's so many places to begin this conversation. I want to focus part of our discussion on a brand-new book that you have just published called Non-Negotiable Essential Principles of a Just Society and Humane Culture. I love the title, and I love the subtitle. Talk to us about what you mean by non-negotiable truths. Well, well there, there simply are truths, and I know in an age when many, many people, and it seems m- many more all the time, uh, are living, in fact, we've had, uh, we've had great faith leaders say people, modern man is li- living today as if God did not exist. Uh, you know, I'll mm. tell you, Dr. George, I see that in some of the Psalms sometimes, right? So it goes right. all the way from that day to our day, living as if God did not exist. When I read a Psalm that says that, I think, wow, this is just so, it's today. Uh, they, they don't, they live as if God does not exist. Well, so when they do that, many people will say, you know, hold on there with the, your truth. You got your truth. I've got my truth. But they're—they don't believe there is such a thing as the truth or an absolute truth. And we know, we believers know there is. So what what I what I mean by the first principles that that we have to come first, that we have to get right, that do exist. They predate any state. They, they predate civilization. They come mm. to us as our founders recognized from God. Those first principles are human dignity. That, that's clearly the the key to the Declaration of Independence, and they begin it enumerating life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness in that order for a reason, because if you don't guarantee life, then you can't go on to liber- guaranteeing liberties or, or what it would take for a good life. Mm. And so when they, they found, founded those, there are truths which are still in our founding documents. Many people have lost sight of today, and that's what I point back to more or less saying we've lost our ability to speak to each other. We can't even think clearly or reason well. We have to begin again to represent to our our culture and our society the truth uh, about the very words we use and what they really mean. So that's what I intend yeah. in the book. Now, you have been a great supporter of the Manhattan Declaration. This is a document that was drafted in 2009 by the late Chuck Colson, our good friend, Professor Robert George at Princeton, and I was involved in it. And it speaks to some of these first principles. We especially are concerned about advocating for the sanctity of life, every human life, from conception to natural death, precious, infinitely precious in the sight of God, worthy of protection in our law and our culture, and under assault today, marriage. We want to talk about that because that's such a current issue in our world in which we live today. Marriage as God intended it to be, a lifelong covenantal and conjugal union of one man and one woman. And then religious freedom, which applies to everybody, and certainly, as you were just saying, is one of those very first principles enunciated in our charter documents. 
First, I just want to thank you for your support of the Manhattan Declaration. Uh, we have nearly 600,000 signatures. I wish we had 6 million. And you have done your part to get the word out about that. And that's one of the themes that's woven into your book. Uh, say a little bit about how you see the Manhattan Declaration and its importance for the moment in which we're living today. Oh, Dr. George, first of all, thank you and, and, and Dr. P uh, Professor Robert George and the late great Chuck Colson for having written it in the first place. I know when I was interviewed by Catherine Jean Lopez for National Review Online about my book, she one of her, one of her questions, and I almost laughed when she asked it, was, so why is the Manhattan Declaration so important to you? But she asked it in that sort of provoking way. <laughs> she really wanted me to elaborate on it because we, she knows as well how important it is. Why did it focus so, feature so prominently in the book? It's so it's a, it's a good question because I believe what you three have written in the Manhattan Declaration and continue on with your alliance with others like Eric Metaxas and many others is in, in a beautiful economy of words. That document, the Manhattan Declaration, states so clearly what these these essential principles are, and you really focus on life religious marriage, and religious liberty. Mm. And these are essential to a rightly ordered society, to civilization itself, to the common good. And, and you do it, again, with an economy of words, hearkening back to the earliest Christians and all the things they did and sacrificed for to live the social gospel, to live in the public life, to, to pick up people off the street, to care for the poor and the needy. In other words, why the, that witness is so important to a civilized world, but the threats to it today, and why it must be defended. It's such a beautiful document. I, I as well as you, on, on my program, Dr. George, a long time ago, when I asked you, what's the latest count of signatories to the Manhattan Declaration? I said to you, you should have a million by now. Mm. Well, you're right. You should have six million by now. It's time to renew the public's awareness, or for some people the first time, of the Manhattan Declaration and the need to sign it. But to, but to go further, we are now further down that path of, mm. of, of, of disorder in our culture. And what you're calling us back to in the Manhattan Declaration is so important that there are, there are many things like like uh, Sir Thomas More, who told the king, I'm the king's good servant, but God's first. Mm. There are some things you say we will, we will uphold if they are just laws. But when there are unjust laws, we can't render to Caesar what is God's. And, and this, is, this is so clearly stated in the Manhattan Declaration that it fits perfectly in the book I wrote, in the, the purposes of the book. And so that's why Dr. George gave me such, uh, such a kind permission to use much of it. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> so it's in the book. Thank it's you for doing that. You know, you're a Roman Catholic, as is our good friend Robert George. I'm an evangelical, as was Chuck Colson. Evangelicals and Catholics have a lot in common on these basic core issues, and it's so important for us today to find ways of standing together, speaking out together for these values. You call them the essential principles of a just society. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your own Catholic faith and how you see that interfacing with evangelicals and also Orthodox believers? Oh, Dr. George, I have all my life. I mean, that's why the book features so prominently as well, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Ever since I was a little girl growing up, the, the, the great civil rights movement, 
that was so important to me before I ever heard the term uh, or the phrase, you know, Catholic social teaching. Uh, my, my father, as a little girl, I would accompany him to actually live it, to take food to the poor, uh, to, you know, to go into shelters, to serve, you know, in, in, in uh, the home for the, uh, you know, whether it was the adult mental, mentally uh, challenged, whether it was the adult blind people. My father served so many of these people and I went with him to do it. We were raised this way. It's in the air we breathed in, in our, mm-hmm. in my ancestry to always serve the poor, to always look out for those in public you can serve. My grandmother always uh, did that as a nurse. So this is just what we believed as Christians. And, and then, and then the, the coalition of Christians, just people who see and understand the common good and what that takes. So the great civil rights movement, where you would have arm in arm, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King with the great uh, Father Richard John Newhouse mm. and others, yeah. Catholics and Evangelicals and, and Southern Baptists, and you name it, all together. Why? Because there are unjust laws. And human dignity and human rights are being not were not only being threatened, they were being denied whole classes of human beings. And therefore, that's why our embrace of, of each other, uh, cutting across, if you will, or, 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 or closing any division that really should not exist, uh, coalitions of Christians, many denominations of creeds, other churches, Fellow believers, co-religionists, and Dr. George, some people who are just people of goodwill but no religious affiliation, working in alliance. That's where I see so much happening today that needs to happen, because the rest of the culture has has lost its way, or gone kind of plunging off the the way, period. And they don't even know any longer what these words mean. So that's why we who do understand uh, the gospel of Christ and, and what he calls us to do, for each other in the and the common good is so important since we do clearly see it. We must. He wants us to work together. See those Christians how they love each other. I want to ask you about an incident. You refer to this in your book when you were a little girl and you were on a business trip with your father to Alabama. Now you know, we're in Alabama. A Beeson Divinity School is on the campus of Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. But you recall an incident that happened when you were traveling with your dad. And you, for the, maybe the first time, saw these segregation signs, the Jim Crow laws, no coloreds allowed, and, and something happened inside you when that happened. What was that? Oh, my gosh. I was so outraged. I was a little girl, but this was my first time out of Midwest, uh, period, and it was my first time into the Deep South, so therefore at all. And, and my father and I went into, well, you know how the older days, the drugstore had a soda fountain and then drugstore things you could buy and all sorts of things. And we went into a drugstore down there to buy some things. And I saw a water fountain that had that sign, no colors allowed. And I stood there and sh- he was must have been in the next aisle. Mm-hmm. He was not right next to me. And I shouted, Dad! You know, like a child always does, thinking the only person who hears her is the, her father, because that's who she's talking to. I said, they can't do that! And I pointed to the sign, and he came running over, and I said, that's not right. And he was, like, hushing me, not because that I was wrong, but just let's just don't start a scene here. Um, but I, I, I was so outraged. And so my father calmly had – we had a really good talk. He, he explained to me, you know, honey, let me tell you how it is down here. So he explained how that segregation, what the daily life was like there, uh, how that worked or didn't, or why it, it was even in place. And the child I was could not begin to understand that, because I didn't see the differences. 
I thought, this is so wrong. These are people like us, families, men, women, children. How dare they say no colors allowed? I was morally outraged. So that was the scene. Yeah, <laughs> and wow. I became a little civil rights activist. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was happening was an awakening of your conscience, right? Uh, you're made in the image okay. of God, and you have this sense of right and wrong that's built into the very fabric of our soul by our Creator. And that was coming awaking you when you saw injustice confronted that. Uh, oh, Dr. Just, you are so right. That's at the core, actually, of our religious liberties battles today, because at the core of it all, as Dr. Dr. Robert George has so well written in his book about conscience and its enemies, at the core of religious liberty is conscience. Everybody has a human right to their, their well-formed conscience. Can't be taken away from them. My little conscience was stirred up and provoked by that, as you say, and it told me that that, that law written on the human heart what we ought to do and ought not to do, where does the ought come from? That's yeah. the natural law written on the human heart. So yes, my conscience was aroused all right, and that was wrong, and I wanted to do something about it. Now there's another word Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used to use a lot, and you use it a lot too. It's a great word, uh, dignity. In fact, you give us the word dignitarian, which I love. And you talk about four dignities, especially dignity from the womb, dignity without end, dignity in love, and dignity of conscience. Those are the issues we talk about in the Manhattan Declaration and that you talk about in your book, Non-Negotiable. I think we know what we mean by dignity from the womb. Talk about dignity without end, why that's also important as we respect the sacredness of life. That's a very, very good question. Dignity without end is because today our end-of-life issues are becoming increasing, well, increasing in numbers and increasingly uh, grave. The gravity of our end-of-life issues that, that are get spiraling out of our control with, with no uh, risk there of hyperbole. That's very true. They are. Those end-of-life issues are becoming uh, more and more pressing on, on our families, on our individuals, and our society that they aren't even aware of maybe until they wind up checking into a hospital or having to be checked in or their loved one or whatever, and they're faced with paperwork, let's say, that they have to fill out and check boxes at a time they're, they might not be prepared to. And many of those are, do you have a living will? Or, or And if you don't, you can find, or I mean, it's not the living will, in fact, that the people understand as a living will that protects you the most. So I really try to explain that in the book as well, that there are things set up in our culture today and healthcare regulation changes over the years rapidly, ever since Terry Schiavo was starved and dehydrated to death. Mm. And we were warned at that time, even before she died, by I got, I remember I reported it on the air as an investigative journalist, that if America lets this woman die, Dutch euthanasia is coming next, and it did. So there's a euthanasia movement and assisted suicide movement that is gaining a lot of ground. And these are the end-of-life issues that are threatening so many people who don't know how to prepare against them by having advanced directives on the right way by with the help of a loved one to be the designated person who can make decisions for them. These are things we all need to know about because lives are being taken. And Dr. George was so sinister about it is right there in and of itself taking lives of the most, most vulnerable, uh, most impaired, cognitively impaired, late in life, palliative care uh, can be given. That's, that's sinister right there. But to change the language and to take our words, our Christian understanding of suffering and how and redemptive suffering and the good that can come from suffering and helping others in their suffering uh, is so lost on a culture that sees suffering as evil. 
And so that to avoid that, they'll help you kill yourself by calling it assisted suicide. The sinister thing is when they, the Hemlock Society changes its name to Compassion and Choices, mm. to turn killing into compassion, and then mercy killing, to use the word mercy. We as Christians understand mercy, God's mercy, great mercy, without end. It's boundless mercy, but they call mercy killing, because somebody, and it can be just somebody who's depressed and doesn't want to go on any longer. The assisted suicide movement will help that person in their life by giving the the deadly cocktail. They can just take these, these pills, a certain set of them, and end their life, the final exit movement. That is so sinister, we must guard against it, and B, walk with our brothers and sisters, care for them in their most impaired state, their most needy state, and vulnerable. And that's what I meant by the end of life, that's what that chapter deals with, Mm -hmm. euthanasia uh, in the assisted suicide movement, which is gaining too much ground, we must work against that. So we face some tough sledding as people of faith who care about these first principles in our society today. Uh, one of the people who has read your book and thinks highly of it is Dr. Alveda King. She's the niece of Martin Luther King, Jr., and she says that you in your book, um, you stress that complacency is not an option. I wonder if you'd elaborate that. I, I hear a lot of Christians talking today that uh, it's time for us to kind of withdraw from our, our witness in the public square. We've lost these battles, uh, and, and so we just need to kind of tend our own uh, uh, nets for a while. What do you say about that? Uh, col- complacency is not an option. We have, um, and, I, and I speak for you know, the, many uh, of my fellow Catholics in the pews, in fact, have not even have not been as out there in the public square or the public arena of ideas as say our brothers and sisters in the evangelical churches and many others. I think that they, there's been much more willingness in some of the churches to stand up and speak out those great uh, moral truths than you know many of my fellow Catholics. And on the other hand, when the HHS mandate came down mm. from this administration, and, and then and, and, and Catholic institutions. We're fighting it uh, in courts, and they still are many employers. You, Dr. George, and, and the late great uh, Chuck Colson were two who wrote something in speaking up together, saying this is this is for all of us to, to hold tight together and to battle any threat to our religious freedom. And you wrote something very important about speaking out and quoting. I believe it's Reinhold Niebuhr. Is it yes. when you know they first they came for the you know the different groups and then? But I'm not of that group, so I said nothing. And then they came for this group, and I was not of that group, but I said I said nothing. Ultimately, it comes down to, and then they came for me, and there was no one to speak for me. That was Martin Niemöller so, who said that. Martin Niemöller was a, a Lutheran pastor during the Third Reich who dared to personally confront Adolf Hitler face-to-face in the name of uh, God. And uh, he's the one who made that statement because so many people uh, had given way to this or that and there was no one left to defend him or anybody else. And that's why I say we, we, can't, we can't not speak. This is the time to speak. We can't look at a TV screen or a headline or an article and shake our heads and say, that's too bad. Somebody ought to do something. Or, oh, gosh, wring our hands, and I wish somebody would do something about this. We are that somebody. So I, I have to ask myself every day, what am I doing today? To make a difference, we have to. It's a time to speak. We have to speak. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King used to used to use the phrase "the urgency of now." Mm. That's in the book, well, because we have that urgency of now again, right now, and not that we ever really lost it, but it's certainly urgent now. 
that we speak, that our voices are heard. We have Christians being not only persecuted and tortured, but, but, but there's genocide against them and eliminated altogether in the cradle of Christianity. We have to speak here in our country. We have to speak on behalf of our right to speak in public. So we are, we are all together in this, those of us who see and believe. And uh, there is no uh, option for complacency. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Sheila Logmanus. She is the host of the daily radio program, A Close Look on Relevant Radio. She's the author of a brand new book. I recommend it strongly to you. Non-negotiable is the title, Essential Principles of a Just Society and Humane Culture from Ignatius Press. You can get it on Amazon.com. Sheila, thank you for this wonderful conversation. Oh, Dr. George, it's been such an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. And God bless you in your clear witness and call for Christian believers to stand together. God bless you as well, Dr. George, and all of yours. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, beesondivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.